Hi, I'm Jonathan Bernison. I am a Jew who believes in Jesus. And I'm so happy to be here with my friend Joe Taylor on Faith's Edge. You're not a victim of your circumstance. You're a victim of the choices you make in that circumstance. And we're either going to make good choices or we're going to make bad. Hi, welcome to the 106th episode of On Faith's Edge. My name is Joe Taylor, recovering atheist and your servant in Jesus Christ. This is your place to hear conversations about God and living a life of faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you so much to Rabbi Jonathan Burness for the introduction. Jonathan is a Messianic Jew, meaning he is a Jew that believes that Jesus is the Messiah. We had a great conversation about why Jews reject Jesus as the Messiah, why the Jewish people hold a special place in God's heart, and the dangerous path that Christians walk by not honoring God's chosen people. Man, I am really excited to bring you today's conversation with the million-dollar man himself, Ted DiBiase. The reason I'm so excited is I grew up a huge wrestling fan in the 1980s. I remember going down to Cincinnati Gardens here in Cincinnati. It's it's uh, closed, and I think they actually tore it down now. So this was back in the 80s. Cincinnati Gardens is where it was happening. A lot of rock concerts there, too, at Cincinnati Gardens. But I remember going down to the wrestling matches, the professional wrestling matches at Cincinnati Gardens, uh, watching epic battles with Ric Flair, Tommy Wildfire Rich, Buzz Sawyer. Man, that that battle between Tommy Wildfire Rich and Buzz Sawyer was historic. I mean, it was unbelievable. I've never seen anything like that in wrestling since. Ricky Steamboat, the fabulous Freebirds were down there, Arn and Ole Anderson, all these old school guys I saw. When wrestling was in town, I was in the front row, first in line for tickets. And to this day, I have boxes of 1980s era wrestling pictures, magazines, memorabilia, all sorts of types of uh, things from 1980s era wrestling. Professional wrestling was certainly a significant part of my, my childhood. And I certainly remember today's guest, the million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Ted is a WWE Hall of Fame professional wrestler best known for his role as the villainous million-dollar man. He is now a full-time evangelist and a speaker in churches, youth groups, men's meetings, corporate businesses. He even goes to public schools and universities all over the world. Ted is married to his lovely life, Melanie, of 31 years, lucky for Ted. And they have three sons, Michael, Ted Jr., and Brett. Ted's new documentary, The Price of Fame, tells his story of the price he paid for fame, money, power, and prestige, and how he learned what's important in life, devotion to family, friends, and giving yourself to others, building strong character and integrity. We start off our conversation peeling back the curtain of professional wrestling in the life of a professional wrestler, both inside the ring and outside the ring. You'll hear names like Ric Flair, Junkyard Dog, Harley Race, Roddy Piper, The Funk Family, Andre the Giant. We talk about Shawn Michaels, Sting, Jake Roberts, and more. If uh, if you're familiar with professional wrestling at all, you know that some of these names are professional wrestling royalty. Uh, really, really uh, great characters of professional wrestling. We'll hear about his relationship with his now-deceased dad, Iron Mike DiBiase, and the touching conversation with his dad at his gravesite, along with a behind-the-scenes look at that powerful moment in the documentary. 
We spend a lot of time talking about Ted's adultery and the example of grace that his wife set for him and his sons. Our conversation in the film, The Price of Fame, is Ted at his most transparent and vulnerable. I really, really think you'll enjoy this conversation and the film. This is a man that is now passionately in love with Jesus, his wife, and his family. And he's on a mission to tell the world about how God can change lives. But just to give you a glimpse of how villainous this million-dollar man was, I want you to hear the audio of a gimmick he used to do. To set the scene, Ted pulls from the from the crowd a cute little boy and offers him $500 if he can bounce a basketball 15 times. I mean, go, go to onfaithedge.com slash 106 to watch the whole video. But this is the audio. But to see the look on this boy's face is just heartbreaking. Let's listen to the. Let's I'll listen tell you to what this. I'm do, Sean. If you can dribble this basketball 15 times consecutively without missing, look at here. I'm going to give you $500. Now I know you and your family can use $500. I can tell by looking at you that you can use a lot more than 500 bucks. Okay. Virgil, give me the basketball. Okay, Sean. 15 times. Ready, go. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Okay, just now the million dollar man kicks the ball away from the boy. We didn't get to 15, Sean. You didn't get to 15, did you? No. He didn't make 15. And you know what that means? What that means, Sean, is you've got to learn a hard, cruel fact of life. When you don't do the job right, you don't get paid. <laughs> okay, Ted, was that a setup or what? Was that a real little boy? Uh, it was absolutely a setup. I mean, uh, every, everything we did on the television was done intentionally to, you know, make the people hate me. But everybody that ever, actually, everybody got the money. They always got the money. But on television, we, we always made it to where I would somehow find a way to, you know, jilt them out of the money. So, uh, but yeah, I got, you know, the little boy in the basketball, man, crocodile tears, it scared him, ran to his mom. I got back in the back and everybody was high-fiving and everything. And I said, I'm glad everybody's happy, but can you find an armored vehicle to get me out of the building? <laughs> you got I said that the right. people out there would like to kill me right now, you know? So <laughs> It's like, what is wrong with this guy? Nobody is that evil. Yeah. But, man, you that was the role. That was the role. The million-dollar man, Ted DiBiase. Welcome to the show, brother. Good to be with you, Joe. Thank you. I go way back to Georgia Championship Wrestling with Gordon Soley. When the hot tag team was Ted DiBiase and Steve O. <laughs> wow. That's really going back there. That was when I first went to Georgia Championship Wrestling. And I'm trying to think it was either it was either very late 1980 or it was very early 1981. Uh, but I know that uh yeah, yeah, my 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 hookup with Steve O was it was it actually short lived. <laughs> <laughs> you were you were really known back then for your technical skills, right? That's right, and I was also uh, what we in wrestling term a uh, babyface. I was a good guy, right. and uh, I eventually turned a bad guy, and uh, you know that the bad guy image is what eventually, of course, in in the it's hard to explain, but in the in the wrestling industry. 
generally speaking, the, the, the bad guys or the heels, as we call them, they are the ring generals. They're the ones that call all the action. And uh, the, the real art of wrestling is improv. And it's being able to call that match as you go. And um, the only thing you really knew for certain was exactly how it would end because wrestling's like a soap opera. It's like, you know, when you watch a soap opera on TV, they, they always leave you hanging at the end, like what's going to happen next. So you have to tune in again. And uh, so we always knew what the finish was and, but everything else was done. You learned it. It's hard to explain, but you learn it's a, it's an acquired skill. You learn to read the crowd and you know what they like and you know what they don't like because every crowd's different and you have to adjust to the crowd. So when I finally became a heel, that was really when my career took off. So was was Million Dollar Man, was that your first heel character? Oh, oh no. I was a heel in, uh, in Mid-South Wrestling is where that started. Cowboy Bill Watts was the promoter and probably one of the guys that uh, had the greatest impact on me in terms of learning the psychology of professional wrestling. Uh, Bill was brilliant, and uh, you know he's a guy. He, he played Oklahoma. He played football at Oklahoma. Was a wrestler himself. And they came from more. Just a very, very, very smart guy. And and by the way, a very strong Christian today. So I learned a lot from Bill Watts. Uh, but I started in Mid South. Bill, I think, was one of the first guys to really break the the color barrier. Uh, the guy's name was the Junkyard Dog. So yeah, I mean, we're in Louisiana, we're in Mississippi, we're in Oklahoma and Arkansas. That that was how that was the size of this what they call the territory. J- Junkyard Dog's real name was Sylvester Ritter. He had played high school and college football, had played a little football with the Green Bay Packers, and then he got into wrestling. And man, I tell you what, you give him a microphone, he was one of the best on the microphone. You know, Bill pushed him as his number one good guy. His, you know, and so I used to tease him. I mean, he was the best man when my wife and I got married. We had this very close relationship. Uh, he was the best man at my wedding. And uh, I used to tease him. I said, look, uh, the music plays and you stroll out there pushing your your wheelbarrow full of junk. You know, that's what a junkyard dog does. And, you know, you, you stand there and you howl at the moon and you get in the ring. And the match might go, if we're fortunate, 10 minutes and you're making all the money. And I'm going out there in 20, 30 minutes a night. You know, I said, I got to do something to change this. And he just laughed. And so... It just hit me one day, and uh, the booker, the guy who was calling all the shots at the time, was another uh, former NFL football player, uh, the big cat Ernie Ladd. Ernie Ladd was like 6'5". I don't know what he was in his prime in terms of weight, but big guy. But he was the booker. He was the guy calling all the shots at the time. And I went and knocked on his door, and I said, Ernie, I said, I found your, your new heel. And he said, who? Because he, he had asked me to be looking around. And I said, you're looking at him. Mm-hmm. And I remember he took a couple steps back and his eyes got real wide. And he said, that is a brilliant idea. And I said, you really think so? I says, absolutely. And so uh, that's where it started. You know, it's like everybody in, in, a, in a territory where you're going to a lot of these towns on a weekly basis, you know, the crowd gets to know you. Well, this crowd watched me grow up. I mean, I started in Mid-South. I left and I came back. I left and I came back. And so they watched me mature. And so all those early years, the earliest years, they had known me as a good guy. And so when I turned on the junkyard dog, who they know is my best buddy, 
I mean, you talk about some heat. And and uh, so we made a lot of money together, OJYD and I, uh, me being the bad guy. It certainly, it certainly sounds like you were having an absolute blast, Ted. But I can see where that, because you were just pure as the driven snow, man. Just, just nice Ted DiBiase, technical wrestler, uh, always did the right thing. Shook hands before the match. I mean, you were that guy. And to turn heel against Junkyard Dog, you probably hated security, didn't you? I remember the first time. After we did, we shot we, we we shot this thing on television where I turned on him, and the first time we were going to wrestle in New Orleans, I told him I said I'm not driving my car to New Orleans, and they said why, and I said because it'll be on blocks when I come out of the building, <laughs> and and uh, and so uh, the uh, the agent so to speak was another former wrestler who wrestled as Grizzly Smith. He's actually uh, Jake Roberts' dad. And he said, okay, ride with me to New Orleans. So we go to, I go to New Orleans with, with Grizzly Smith. And, and of course the people see me arrive with him. And so me and JYD have this match. And of course it wasn't a very long match because this is right after this thing happened. So he, he runs out to the ring. He jumps in the ring. He just beats me from pillar to post. But then I, you know, again, we got to get them back next week. So I, I go in the tights and I, you know, I load the, I load the glove <laughs> and I knock him out <laughs> and I, you know, I cheat to win. And, you know, so I'm back in, in, in the dressing room and I've showered and getting dressed and old Grizz comes walking in the dressing room, just shaking his head. And I said, what's wrong? He just shaking his head. I said, something wrong with the match. He said, no, the match was great. I said, well, what's wrong? He said they slit my tires, all four of them. Oh my gosh! <laughs> the people were so mad, and they knew that I had rid, rid, ridden down there with him, so they slit his tires. So, so yeah, there were times, you know, back then a lot of people took the wrestling real serious. Sure, everybody knew how the match was going to end. How you got there was uh, was up to the storytellers, like you were a master at. Uh, did you ever have a time where that wasn't the case where you thought the match was supposed to go a certain way and it didn't end that way because somebody decided they wanted to end, they wanted it to end another way? Well, no, that's never happened to me. Uh, I, I'm sure I've heard a couple of stories about things like that happening, but yeah, generally speaking, you know, um, you're, you know, this is your job and, and you're, you, you have, you have the boss to answer to. Mm. And if you don't do things the boss's way, then there's the door. And uh, especially in wrestling, you know, and, and you know, and, uh, and, and really, uh, we're a bunch of guys. It's, a, it's almost like a fraternity. And in reality, two guys out there, they're, they're working together to entertain the crowd. So even though it looks like they're having this knockdown drag out, you know, uh, contest or fight, Reality is they're working together to entertain the crowd. The real fight never happened in the ring. You know, something might happen in the ring that that caused a, a, a riff, but the real fight always happened back in the dressing room after the match where nobody could see it. <laughs> so if, 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 you, if I can be so bold to ask you, who was your favorite opponent? My first WrestleMania, which was WrestleMania 4, uh, that was huge because it was uh, the first time, you know, I'm, the, I'm my first WrestleMania and I'm the main event. And that main event ends up being me and Randy Savage. And uh, Randy and I had never wrestled before. Uh, 
that night. And, uh, you know, we had a, what I thought and a lot of people thought was a really good match. And so that was a standout match. And another guy I really enjoyed wrestling all the time was Jake Roberts. Mm. And we actually wrestled each other at WrestleMania six. And that was another really, really, really good match. Another guy I really liked to, to work with. And, uh, Bret Hart, who I'd only had a few matches with Rick Flair. I mean, Rick and I, uh, we didn't really get to wrestle that often, but when we did, I mean, we always tore the house down. No and, doubt. Uh, so, um, you know, those are some, some of the guys, J J Y D, you know, I had, I had a blast with him, you know, J Y D was not really a great wrestler. Uh, but you, I, I just, I would utilize the things that he did well in a match. That was my job. But where, where he was really great was on the microphone. Oh my gosh, there's nobody better. Yeah. Andre, the, Andre, his documentaries out now on HBO and I, and I watched it, you know, and I, and I learned a lot about Andre and they, they shared a lot of that stuff about how uncomfortable he always was with his size. You know, he could never hide anywhere. And, uh, you know, he was always looking for a place to be comfortable and, and, uh, you know, and he had already decided he was going to give it up, you know, and then and Vince talked to him into staying through WrestleMania three and then post WrestleMania three, he stayed all the way through WrestleMania four with me. Well, and then, and then for almost the next year we traveled together and, and we were tag team uh, partners. So I really enjoyed Andre's uh, company. Andre was, he was, he, if you really knew him, if you knew the real Andre, he was a gentle giant, you know, mm-hmm. and, uh, and you know what, and a pretty shrewd judge of character. If Andre didn't like you, you're, you were going to know it. <laughs> and he was usually right. <laughs> let's, let's talk about the price of fame. Why was it important for you to do this movie? I, I surrendered to evangelism, like in, in the year 2000, um, you know, my active wrestling career came to an end about the end of 1993, uh, two discs in my neck actually manifested themselves and herniated, you know, it was, it wasn't any one accident. It was, it was years of taking bumps and I was about to turn 40. And so I, I said, you know what, my, my active career is done. I'm over, I'm done. I had surgery on my neck and, uh, they replaced the, the discs with the uh, bone plugs from my hip, but you know, now it's dangerous to wrestle. So I then became a manager commentator, but, uh, the transformation in my life, you know, coming back to God happened in 1992, the year before, uh, when my wife got me in adultery and, um, it was a game changer for me. The realization in, a, in a, you know, it's kind of like, you know, the Bible says, whatever, you, whatever you do in darkness will be revealed in the light. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. When it is, I tell people now, I go, you see yourself for who you really are, and it's ugly. And I I was at the top of my success and fame. I was, you know, you know, uh, gosh, I'm now in the WWF, and I'm traveling in Learjets and limousines, and, you know, wrestling's going big time, and I'm right there at the top with it. And uh, I just fell right in line with the rest of the guys, you know, the next town, the next party. By the grace of God, never addicted to any drug or alcohol, but uh, was caught in adultery. And uh, I remember calling home the day after WrestleMania 8, which was in Indianapolis. And this is after I'd been out all night partying. And my wife confronted me with this on the phone. And I said, I don't want to talk about this on the phone. I'll be on the next plane home. And she said, no, you won't. You don't live here anymore. Mm. Click. 
Oh my gosh. I'm telling you in that moment, I realized you fool, you have put at risk the most important thing in your life, the most valuable relationship in your life, not to mention the future and the stability of your own children. And for what? You see, I wasn't unhappy at home. I had I had a great relationship with my wife. I was on this massive ego trip. It was all about Ted. That was the that was the that's the wall. That's when I really hit the wall. And you know, and God, you know, God has a way of getting your attention and giving you that uh, that flashback. You know, like uh, let's 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 re- rewind this and let's show you. And so I could go back to when my dad died and my mom started drinking and I I clung to my faith and I. You know, that's in the documentary where I, that cemetery is in the documentary. I would go out to that cemetery and pray all the time and ask God to give me the, the skills that I needed to be an athlete. And I, I got the scholarship to go play college football out of this little bitty town, Wilcox, Arizona. But when I got there at the age of 18, that's when the pride of life took over. And that's where my ego took over. And for the next 20 years, it was, it was all about Ted. But it culminated with that with that day that my wife confronted me. And that was the beginning of a turnaround in my life. That was the beginning of me seeking heavily after God. I never, I never in my life thought that I would surrender to evangelism and end up spending the last 18 years uh, traveling all over the the United States and Canada and literally around the world, Uh, three mission trips to India. I've been to the Philippines one time and, and all over Europe. Uh, England, Ireland, Scotland, uh, evangelizing, but God had a plan. It just took me 38 years of my life to begin to understand what it really means to be a Christian. You know, and, and again, as I tell people, I said, I'm not a wrestler in the physical sense of the word. And you'll never see this body in spandex again. I can promise <laughs> you that. <laughs> I said, but I have come to wrestle with you. And I said, I've got the greatest tag team partner in the universe. His name is Jesus. Mm. You know, and, and I challenged the atheist. You don't believe in God, really? I said, well, let, I, I tell you what, let me just ask you a question. Let's just say for the sake of argument that you're right and I'm wrong. If you're right and I'm wrong, it won't matter. But for the same sake of argument, if I'm right and you're wrong, you're wrong for eternity. That's a pretty long time to be wrong. Doesn't it make sense? Isn't it worth the time that you would invest to check it out, to examine the evidence? And there are so many, oh my gosh, most, uh, you know, some of the greatest, as a matter of fact, one guy who I got to meet personally and, and have several conversations with, because I was a speaker as he was on like this, uh, it was a Christian cruise, Josh McDowell, uh, who wrote uh, Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Right. And of course, that's a great big thick book, but it wasn't the verdict that he thought because he was, he set out to disprove that, that Jesus Christ was God. And you know what? He found out he was absolutely wrong. And I tell everybody, don't take my word for it. The Bible says, God says in the Bible, when you search for me and you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me. And you know what? I finally found him. And uh, I finally came back to the, you know, I had a childlike faith when I was young and I abandoned it. And and then there were two, a couple of attempts along the way that, because I knew I wasn't living right. And I, you know, but they were vain attempts. You know, God never gave up on me. And, and literally had to let me climb the mountain, go to the top of the mountain, get all the stuff you think you want. You think that's going to make you happy and find out what life is like there without me in your life. And I'm going to tell you, Joe, 
I was at the top of my game. I was making more money than I'd, I, I, I'd ever made. I, you know, action figures, video games, all that stuff. And in that moment, I realized that if I said all that stuff, a nice house, a big car, all of the nice clothes you, you can buy without my integrity, without a wife and a family to share it with, it's absolutely meaningless. And it was a real eye opener. And by the grace of God, uh, my wife, and I'll tell you, if Melanie had not been as mature in her faith as she was at the time this happened, I wouldn't be married. I mean, I, I literally expected her to go. I mean, I, I didn't deserve it. And I knew I didn't, I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve her, but my wife's response and she, and she was really honest. She said, number one, I'm not doing this for you because you don't deserve it. She said, but I serve a God of restoration, not divorce. And she said, for whatever reason, the still small voice in my heart is telling me that for whatever reason, give you another chance. And she was, I'm not sure I can do it. I'm not sure I can make it. She said, but I'm going to try. And I said, she said, no promises. She goes, I might last a week. I might last a month. I, I No promises. And I took the ball and I ran with it. And uh, as Melanie began to see the priorities in my life change, uh, you know, when, when she realized that God had genuinely become number one in my life and my family next, and then my job, as she'd get up and come in and I'm sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and my Bible open and one devotional after another and begin to lead my family in prayer and lead my family to church and, you know, take the spiritual helm of the ship that I was called to do. That's when all those things came back. And today we're closer than ever. But back to the price of fame, you know, Joe, I've written two books. You know, I, I, my first book is called Every Man Has a Price. It's my testimony. It's my story. A lot of the stuff I just shared with you were in that book. And then I, you know, I went back to the WWE and I wrote another book, which focuses on my career. But that book also tells my story. And the last couple of chapters talks about how I transitioned out of wrestling into being a minister. So I've, I've written two books and, you know, my, my, my testimony can be bought on a DVD, you know, and, and, and at all the places where I go and speak. But along comes Pete Fierro. He says, my friend would like to have a shoot interview with you. And in wrestling terminology, shoot means real. We're not talking about wrestling storylines. We're talking about real life. Well, by now, you start talking about my real life and asking me questions about my real life. I'm going to start telling you what Jesus has been doing in it. Right. In Pete's own words, at the time, he was the somewhat backslidden son of a minister. And God snuck up on Pete in this interview through my story and just turned him around. And so Pete and I became friends. And then one day Pete approaches me and he says, Teddy, I know you've written a couple of books, but I would like to tell your story on film, like a documentary. And I went, wow. And I said, well, you know what, Pete, if you'd like to, yeah, if you would like to, great. You know, okay. Well, my son came along uh, and uh, uh, Pete, you know, heard me talk about Wilcox, Arizona, where I went, uh, finished high school after my dad's death and my mother's turned to alcohol. Uh, he wanted to see this place and he wanted to see this cemetery. And 
And so, and it's in the documentary. So we go there, but my son, Ted Jr. comes with us and Ted Jr. will tell you, he wasn't real sure about Pete. He came along. He said, dad, I, he, later he told me, he says, dad, he says, I was just making sure this guy wasn't trying to take advantage of you. <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, my son gets to see little Wilcox, Arizona. And he was like, gosh, dad, what did you do here? I mean, three traffic lights. I said, yeah, really? He had the idea to put this twist on it. He said, it's your story and we're going to tell it. But how about we tell it through, through my eyes, the eyes of my brother? Because Teddy knew that I spent a lot of time speaking to men and challenging men to be the, the husbands and the fathers that God called them to be. And so I thought it was a good idea. And that's how Ted Jr. got involved and eventually my son, Brett. And so the story is not just about the redemption of, of me personally, but it's the redemption of my marriage. It's the redemption of the relationship. Well, there really wasn't a redemption so much with my, my boys because my boys knew that their, their mom and dad were happy. I mean, they never, they never knew any different. They never knew any different until they heard me start sharing my testimony from a church. And I always thought, well, you know, if they have any more questions, they'll ask me. Mm. And uh, those questions never really surfaced until the documentary, the idea of the documentary came along. And both of my boys by this time had gotten married. They have their own wives now and they have their own children uh, at the time. They, you know, they, they each had a boy. And since then, uh, just in the last, literally in the last month, uh, Ted Jr. has given us our first girl. And my son, Brett, just his wife, just three days ago, gave us another boy. So I have four grandchildren now. Congratulations, man. Congratulations. And, uh, Very cool. But my boys, you know, through that, my boys, it was kind of like, okay, dad, I know how I love my wife and I love my, my, my children. And, you know, that's our mom. You know, how, how could you do that, Dad? And the tough questions. And, you know, and of course, if you've seen it, then, you know, uh, it's it's like it's a question that's you know, it's like as I look back at that person from where I am today, I ask the same question. How could I have done that? And the answer is simply that I was just absorbed with myself. Uh, you know, fame is not what most people think it is. It's really whatever you make it. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's, again, I tell, I tell kids all the time, high school assemblies, I said, you're not a victim of your circumstance. You're a victim of the choices you make in that circumstance, whatever it might be. And we're either going to make good choices or we're going to make bad. And in my case, I made very good choices when I was very young. But then I got all full of myself when I got went to college on a football scholarship. And then it was all about Ted. And I was driven by that for the next 20 years until God, you know, slapped me down and got my attention and made me realize how horribly selfish I'd been. And uh, uh, so, you know, and I, and I don't care, you know, even if you're like, you, know, you said you have a lot of non-believers, you know, listening to your your program. I said, you know. I said, this isn't just for, it's not a Christian film. It's, it's my life story. And I, I think that anybody, anybody that's going through any adversity in life can watch this and take something away from it. And, uh, 
uh, you know, I dealt with my mother's alcoholism. I dealt with, uh, you know, the fact that I had lost uh, my dad. And so I, I, you know, of course, then I had a loving grandmother uh, who was kind of an icon in our family and, and very loving. So it wasn't like I was totally lost. There wasn't anybody there that, you know, loved me and my mother. You know, I didn't really get angry at my mother until I grew up and had my own children. I felt sorry for her. I thought, oh, my poor mom, you know, she lost her husband and, you know, we had to go back to little old Wilcox. But then when I grew up and I had my my first son and I realized how much I loved my son and that I would die for him. And then I then I would think back to my mother saying, saying, I just wish I'd die. I have nothing to live for anymore. Mm. And I had to I had to forgive her. And it took me a while, but I did. Uh, so, you know, I think there's something in the documentary for everybody. And the other thing about fame, you know, you see the glamour. It's like, oh, gosh, you know, yeah, if you're a wrestling fan, like WrestleMania just happened in New Orleans, you know, you go in the Superdome, the place is packed. And all those people screaming, they know who you are. They know your name and you're recognizable everywhere you go. And man, that's got to be great. Well, you know, and the thrill, the thrill of the match and the roar of the crowd, that is pretty exciting. But what those people don't see is they don't see you when you leave that arena and you go back to a hotel room and oftentimes in a town that you're not familiar with, or you don't know much about it, or you don't know anybody and you you have to get up very early the next day and go do it again. So you've got four walls and a television and your family, whether they're 20 miles away or 2000 miles away, they're not there with you and you're not sharing that time with them. And that place becomes a very lonely place. And so to beat that loneliness, you know, you get out of that room and you go downstairs and you go to the bar and you have a beer. Fair enough. You know, nothing wrong with that. Of course that turns into two. And down the slippery slope, you start to go. And pretty soon, the devil's pulled you right away. And that good-looking gal saddles up alongside you and starts a conversation, innocent enough. But it all goes south. Mm. And and pretty soon, you find yourself in a place you never expected to be. And, uh, um, again, by the grace of God, you know, uh, and I know my, you know, uh, my boy. One, one, one point in the in the in the documentary, uh, my wife said to Ted Jr. Or he said to her, he said, "Mom, he says, you know, you're really the hero of this story." And she said, "I'm not a hero." And she kept stressing that, you know, because uh, there were a couple other times where it was brought up. She goes, "I'm not a hero." She goes, "What you need to understand is." I had to struggle just as much as your dad did. Yes, I was the one offended, but I was also the one that had to forgive. And I didn't want to forgive. I didn't want to do the right thing. And it took a lot of, you know, it, it, you know and, and it all took time. So my wife just had this really great perspective. And again, uh, it was her maturity in, in the Lord and, and the, the people that she surrounded herself with. You know, and I've heard her say it, you know, we will speak together. And she said, I could have easily run to the world. I could have run to the people who would tell me what I wanted to hear, divorce the bum and take everything he's got. Or I could go to those people who would give me wise counsel. My Christian brothers and sisters, my closest friends, there were only four couples who ever knew about this until years later when I started sharing that. During this time, uh, was there anybody? 
anybody in the wrestling world at all that could that you could have reached out to that could have held you accountable that you could have that you could have said hey brother i'm i'm struggling here were there any men of faith any any people of faith that you could have reached out to not not that i know of uh, you know it was kind of like everybody was a rock star uh, I, but but the the guy that i did reach out to and that's in the in the documentary as well uh, who's a pastor now, uh, Hal Santos. I met Hal in a gym in Baton Rouge in January of 82. Well, I got married to Melanie on New Year's Eve, 81, the last day of 81. And Hal approached me and said he'd seen me on television and uh, knew that I was a wrestler. And he said, I just I got one question for you, Ted. And he, I said, yeah, what's that? He said, do you know Jesus? I mean, Hal was pretty bold. But that started a conversation that started a relationship that was a pretty one-sided relationship for the next 10 years. Because Hal left there and he went to uh, the St. Louis area and he went as a youth minister and that the pastor there retired and he he eventually you know that that pastor placed him in, in the in, in there as a the pastor. He's been a pastor there ever since. But I the, the reason I appreciate Hal so much is that. I realize now, looking back, what he demonstrated to me for 10 years was the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Anytime he was around, anytime I came to the area, anytime he called, it was just, how you doing, Ted? Is there anything Is there anything I could be praying for, for you about? And, and what he didn't do is beat me up with religious questions. Are you going to church? Are you doing this? Are you doing that? And it wasn't the checklist. And you know, if I wasn't doing it, you know, it was like, you know, well, you know, I'm not going to give up on this guy. He Never, he never quit. And in my darkest hour, he's the guy I called. And uh, to this day, he's my best friend. And he's been my mentor. He's been, uh, you know, the guy I, I have remained the most accountable to. Uh, but it was, it was life-changing. Roddy Piper called you one of the top one-half percent, top one-half percent of professional wrestlers in the world, Ted. Those comments from other wrestlers are not uncommon about Ted DiBiase. Those kind of comments have to feel good coming from your contemporaries. Uh, yeah, they are. You know, that, that was another thing about the, uh, the documentary is that, uh, you know, Pete, you know, spent a lot, a lot of time going around and in- interviewing all these guys that were interviewed. And the first time that I saw the finished product was the first time that I heard these interviews. And it's I'm watching my story and a story I've told hundreds of times, but I'm I'm weeping. I'm just weeping, just like being inducted in the Hall of Fame. You're being honored amongst your peers and by your peers. And, and I think about a lot of the people that I that I looked up to, you know, Roddy Piper was one of them, too. You know, he was he was he's in that same category as well. God bless him and God rest his soul. Yeah, it was it was very flattering and uh, humbling in a way, you know, to to know that that many people thought thought that much of me. So, you know, I had a lot of help along the way, you know, the the funks and a guy named Harley Race and uh, again, a cowboy Bill Watts, who who taught me so much about the industry. So I guess I'm like I was a natural wrestler. Vince, Vince McMahon looked at me one day and he said, Ted, he said, you know, he said, you remind me of a guy named Ray Stevens. Ray Stevens was a, a wrestler, basically 
he was still wrestling when I started, but he was right at the end of his career. Him and Pat Patterson were a tag team out in California. And Pat, that's another guy that I actually wrestled a few times. That was tremendous. When he, when he said Ray Stevens, I said, why Ray? He says, well, have you ever asked Ray why he did anything in a match at any particular time? He couldn't really explain it to you. And I said, that's right, Vince. I said, and I can't explain it to you either. It's, it's an, an innate ability. It's an acquired skill to read, to read the crowd. You're telling the story, but you're telling it as you go. And, and you try to make it as believable as you possibly can. That's a real art of wrestling. And it's kind of a dying art. So even though I was very good at what I did, now you tell me the story, you tell me what story you want told in the ring, and I can go make the magic, magic happen. <laughs> but what I'm not good at is I'm not the storyteller. I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's like I'm not the guy who diagrams the show. Like, okay, you're going to wrestle – this guy and you're going to wrestle this guy and you know like next week we'll do this and the next week we'll do this and the next week we'll do this that's what the booker or the you know that's what he does that that would be the guy that writes the story and i said you know that's that's not my gift i would not make a very good uh what do you call producer (laughs) you know because today you know those guys they you know they rehearse a lot of that stuff or not rehearse it but they they talk the whole thing through and i couldn't do that you know, if you asked me to, I mean, I, you know, I would, it was organic and it's hard to explain, but that's, that's, that's real wrestling in my book. This movie, the price of fame is raw and honest and at times really uncomfortable. There's a really heavy meeting between you and your sons, especially Brett, uh, who wants to confront you. Can, can you tell us about that moment and how hard that was for you? obviously it was hard, you know, here's my, here's my baby, my youngest son. It was uncomfortable. It was uncomfortable for anybody watching. It was uncomfortable for me. So, cause I'm sitting there going, how do I answer this question? I think one of the things Brett said, he says, you, you know, you've never asked me to forgive you. Well, and again, we go back to the beginning. My, my wife, my wife's wishes were, and I was going to be obedient to that. She said, in spite of what you done to me she goes you're a great dad and she goes i don't want to ruin that so until these boys are old enough to understand this they don't know anything about it and so i honored that and again like i said earlier the first time they started hearing that there was ever anything amok in our relationship was when i started sharing the testimony from from a pulpit and like i said i assumed and i guess you should never assume that they would if they had other questions, they, they would approach me, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, And, you know, I look back and I go, you know what? It might've been good for me to pull them off individually or together. And, uh, we just didn't do that. But, you know, again, God seems to work everything out and my family's close. Um, uh, couldn't be closer. Like I said, I just had two new grandchildren, a girl, our first girl and, and another little boy and, uh, things are good. But, uh, it's like I told Brett and Teddy, I said, I, I can't explain it to you. I said, because I'm not that person anymore. And the, the person I am today looks back at that person and goes, what were you thinking? The simple truth is that I was so totally on an ego trip and so consumed with self. You know, I, I made excuses for for all of it. And uh, it's, a, it's unexcusable. 
And you said it though, Joe, it's raw. And you know what? Here's what I have found. The hardest thing, especially for men to do is be transparent. If you put, you, you, you put a bunch of girls in a room, you give them a 20 minutes and they're pouring <laughs> out their lives to each other. Yeah. You put a bunch of guys in a room, you know, and you ask, Hey man, how you doing? The guy's life might be falling apart, but his pride is not going to let him tell you, Oh, I'm okay, man. I'm okay. So when I go into church and people are, especially men recognize me as this guy who was a, like, you know, this, this big wrestler guy who, you know, was an athlete and, you know, you know, he's famous and all that other stuff, you know, it's kind of like big guys, you know, look up to other big guys or, you know, whatever. And, but then, then when I, then when I become so open and transparent about my life, it disarms them. And I can't tell you how many men, there've been several men who have come up to me after church meeting or a, a gathering of, of speaking engagement of some kind and said one, uh, several have said, forgive me. I misjudged you. I was expecting to get the, what he, he called what some of them called the typical jock testimony where it's all about my career. And oh, by the way, I love Jesus. It says, but you absolutely stunned me because you were so brutally honest. So what, what that tells them is, I am absolutely, totally sincere. I mean, you know what? And God broke me of pride. I mean, God, when he humbled me, he humbled me. And, you know, I don't have any problem telling anybody, uh, you know, what's happened in my life. And it's, 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 you know, I am who I am today because of the love of Jesus Christ. Uh, am I perfect? By no means. I blow it every day in some way. We all do. But I have the security of knowing that my sins were bought at a price paid for at the cross. And I'm eternally, eternally grateful. One of the things that I remember when we were going from the airport to pastor Hal's house and I was, I was just beside myself. What am I going to do? And, and he said, Ted, he said, Jesus said, the truth has set you free. He never said it'd be painless or easy. He said, if you'll trust him today the way you did when you were a kid, when your dad died and your mom started drinking, if you'll place that childlike faith back in him, he said, he'll forgive you, Ted, and he'll restore you. He said, you need see, he never left you. You left him. And all these years, he's been trying to draw you back. And then he said, remember, Jesus is both fully God and fully man. So being fully God, he's the God who put every star in the guy when you look up at night. And the God who would knew, knew when you would take your first and last breath and everything you would do in between. And he's the God who, if you were the only person who ever lived, still would have stepped down off the throne of heaven and died on that cross just for you. And Joe, all I can tell you is that in that moment in time, a time when I was at the height of my fame and popularity, I'd, I'd wrestled in front of 80,000 people at Wembley Stadium. I had... I, I, action figures, video games, and all that stuff. And then I examined my life and I looked at how many times God had been there for me and I had trampled his blessing and I had trampled it again and I had trampled it again because of my selfishness and my pride. And in that moment, realizing that that same God, in spite of how many times I had trampled the blessing, still loved me and would still forgive me. Game changer. Here's what I tell guys all the time now. We talk about committing our life to Christ, 
Well, here's what you got to know. Before you can commit it to, to him, you have to surrender it first. And you're either all in or you're not in. Mm. <laughs> and it was, it, I was 38 years old. When, that's what I tell everybody. I said, until I was 38 and I came to this realization, I was a boy. I might have looked like a man, but I was a little boy, you know, because I, I was continuing to make bad choices. That's when I, that's when I began to grow up. And you know what? I'm still a work in progress. I think we all are until we take our last breath. I believe that wholeheartedly. So but, uh, as far as the fruit of the decisions I've made, my wife is absolutely my closest, dearest friend. Mm. Absolutely. Without a doubt. Every time I hear that song that Bette Midler sings, The Wind Beneath My Wings, I think of my wife and it makes me cry. My relationship with my my sons and and now here I am. I'm, I'm 64 years old. I've got four grandchildren. Actually, I have five. Uh, my my other son Michael, my prodigal, who finally came home, and that's another story for another time. Who's uh, totally given his life to God now. He's 40 years old. Uh, he was two years older than me, but he got there. <laughs> he, he has a little girl now. So, and I have the opportunity and the joy of being able to watch my grandchildren grow up people say gosh ted you know you're you're a you're a living wrestling legend and i said yeah well i might be i said but that's not how i want to be remembered so i want to be remembered as someone who left a legacy a legacy i want i want to be remembered as a man who was grateful for uh what god allowed him to have and used the latter part of his life to give give to give as much of it back as I possibly could and to, you know, leave an example for my boys. And uh, I'm watching my boys grow into to real godly young men today too. So I'm blessed in a big way. There's this significant moment. And that was personally hard for me to watch just to be transparent with you as you're talking to your dad at his grave. And you said, I finally got it right. I finally got it right, Dad. Yeah. What would Iron Mike DiBiase say back to his boy? Well, the dad that I knew and loved and remembered in, in that moment would have hugged me. He would have hugged me and he would have kissed me and, and loved on me. Just so you understand, I didn't expect this to happen. I, When we went out to the cemetery, I mean, I knew, I knew Pete wanted to go and he wanted to shoot the cemetery. But I thought I thought what he was going to do was get me out there in that setting and, and ask me questions. And you know, as I'm standing there, you know, kind of share my story about, well, this is where I, I used to come. You know, when I went down and out and I, my mom was drinking and, all, you know, and tell that story. But instead, Pete said, Dad. I want you to, uh, as you walk through that gate and you go there and you stand in front of your dad's grave, he says, I want you to, in your mind, envision that this is the first time you've been here in a very long time. And and it is the first time you've been here in a very long time. Maybe not since you got saved, but it's the first time you've been here in a while. But I want you to talk to your dad as if it was the first time you came back here since all you've been through. And Joe, I'm going to tell you something. It was unbelievable. I mean, because uh, I mean, I just, I didn't expect it. I started talking 
and I just broke and I cried like a baby. Mike was actually my stepfather. I mean, but he was the only dad I knew from five years on. And I lost him at the age of 15. And he had instilled so many good things, qualities in me in terms of, uh, you know, he says, you know, don't be the, don't, don't follow the crowd. You know, that's the easy thing to do. And that's what I tell kids. I said, you know what? You want to be the head, not the tail. You want to be, be, be a leader, not a follower. And he'd say, you know, if you're willing to work hard, you can be anything you want to be. And and to my dad, my dad, you know, grew up in an Italian neighborhood, ethnic neighborhood, South Omaha, Nebraska, poor. And he's the guy who came out of the, the Italian hood, so, so to speak. And he went to the Navy and then and he wrestled for Navy. And then he went to the University of Nebraska, graduated from Nebraska with a degree, degree in education and lettered eight times, four years in football, four, four in wrestling. and was the conference heavyweight champion three years in a row. He was a man who I wanted to be like. And I wanted him to be proud. And that was another another moment that nobody saw in the film because it wasn't all the film is that after I hung up with Melanie and she said, you know, you don't live here anymore. I want to say uh, one of the things that came rushing into my head was what would my dad think right now? And I just wept. I mean, I, I did a lot of crying. <laughs> Yeah, but Pete, you know, uh, I have to give him credit. He he snuck that one in on me, man. I, I didn't expect it, and I didn't I didn't really expect to respond the way I did. But you know, it was just natural. You can tell, man. You can tell that was a very significant moment. Did you realize that Terry Funk was holding so much guilt inside about about uh, the responsibility he felt for your dad's death? No, I didn't. And you know what, Terry has been. One of my closest friends for the longest time. I, you know, I finished high school out in Arizona and I had signed a scholarship. I thought I was going to the University of Arizona and I turned the TV on one day and it was a wrestling show. They were coming to Tucson, but it was the, it was out of Texas, which is about 600 miles away. And the funks, you know, Terry and his brother, Dory Jr. And, and his dad, who was still alive at the time, who was very close to my dad, Dory Sr. They were all going to be there. And so that's the first time I had seen them in three years since my dad's death. And uh, uh, Terry asked me, he said, would you be interested in taking a trip back to Texas? You know, even if you've already made up your mind, just take the recruiting trip. I said, I can, I can, uh, I can arrange it and just come back and see, uh, see all your friends. And uh, I said, that'd be great. So I went to West Texas state and I got back around wrestling just a little bit. And, that's where I went. Uh, so Terry's been a friend um, almost all my life. I mean, I've known him since I was a very young boy. And uh, he's about my older brother's age. I mean, I'm 64. So you now he's got to be like 72 or 73. I'm going to let the listeners uh, watch the movie to find out why Terry felt guilty. It's a just an intriguing story. I didn't, I didn't know that until until I watched it. And after that, you know, I called him and I told him, I said, Terry, I said, you know, don't, don't ever think for a minute. The other thing that I didn't realize until I heard it was Georgie Animal Steel. I didn't realize that, you know, George, I remember George showing up at a speaking engagement I had, but I didn't realize that that speaking engagement was what began his journey. You know, to God. Mm. 
And, uh, and he even said he was so honest. He said, you know, at first I was kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Another, he said, but the more Ted talked, he said, the more, and the more raw and transparent he was, he said, I realized this was real. See, there you go. That's why transparency changes everything. You know, when you're willing to put it all on the line, you you know, God gets the, God gets the glory and he gets the results. Finally, Ted, as we wrap up, what would you say to that, to that person that is right on faith's edge, making that choice to believe or not to believe in God? Say, go for it. When, when, if you ask the question, what do you have to lose? What you have to lose is eternity. And, and what you have to gain is everything. Every, every Christian, every Christian has a testimony. Uh, every, every Christian can tell you, you know, here's, here's where my life changed. And it changed for the better. Uh, you know, people ask me all the time, gosh, are you really a millionaire, a million dollar man? I said, no, I'm not. And I said, but my, my daddy, my real daddy owns a cattle on a thousand hills. <laughs> uh, uh, that's God. He's my real daddy. And I said, uh, you know, Jesus said, store for yourself treasure in heaven for neither rust or moth break in and seal for where your treasure is there. Your heart will be also. I'm not interested in, in getting rich. You know, I'm God, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm comfortable. I don't care about, you know, it's like I am the composite opposite of the I think God's got a sense of humor of all the guys that could have been the million dollar man. It was like, God said, okay, I'm going to show you what you're not supposed to be. And I'm going to take the same guy and I'm going to, I'm going to change his life and show you what you should be. I've been evangelizing for 18 19 years. And I could tell you so many stories about so many lives. My, my boys, my sons, I mean, each of them have had their own little issues. And, and, uh, the bottom line is the answer to everything, the answer to every problem in the world and in the universe can be found in one person, Jesus Christ. I would challenge you. You know what? Don't take my word for it. Examine the evidence, examine the evidence and examine, you know, go ahead, look at what history says. I mean, history proves that Jesus Christ was a historical person. They know that he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, died on a cross. But you know what? Nobody has ever been able to explain or find the body because mm. it wasn't there. How do you explain that? How do you try to explain that away? The guards that were there. If you fall asleep or you desert your post, it's punishable by death. And so it's, there's so many, there's, there are so many things to consider, but unless you take that journey, unless you go into that search with an open mind and an open heart, there's a lot of people that go in and they've already made up their mind that I'm not going to believe this. Even my older brother, my older brother has a, a master's degree in psychology, and that might be part of his problem. <laughs> <laughs> but he's very intelligent. He's, you know, he's retired now. He taught college level mathematics. And so he's a pretty bright guy. And for the longest time, he didn't believe in God. You know, you know, he thought it was a fairy tale. Now, I haven't got any to where he's believing in Jesus Christ yet. Because he still seems to think that the universe is so big that how could a God who created all this give three nickels about you or me? But the bottom line is he's done enough research and he is he's now he now understands, you know what? This couldn't have happened by accident. 
I mean, it's like the solar system that we live in and how everything is so intricate and everything is so perfect. And if just a little bit is off this way or that, that way, none of it works. There's design in everything if you look close enough. So he believes that there is a great big God out there. He just hasn't come to a place where he's willing to trust Jesus, but he's almost there. I don't think we can say anything more than that. Ted DiBiase, the million dollar man. The movie is The Price of Fame, available right now on DVD. Thank you so much for being with us, brother. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. God bless you, Joe. God bless you, my friend. The Price of Fame is available on Amazon.com. Ted's website is heartofdavidministry.com. These links, as well as all the other links, can be found in today's show notes at onfaithsedge.com slash 106. That's on faithsedge.com slash 106. If you want to interact with me, I am most active on Twitter at at 4JoeTaylor. That's at F-O-R-J-O-E-T-A-Y-L-O-R at 4JoeTaylor. Or you can contact me directly at onfaithsedge.com slash contact. I love bringing you these engaging conversations about faith, about faith. And I certainly hope you enjoyed this one with Ted. If this show entertains you, encourages you, informs you, or brings value to you in any way whatsoever. Will you consider financially backing the show by using any Amazon link at onfaithsedge.com? We'll get a modest commission from the purchase, but it doesn't cost you a penny more. Well, that'll wrap up today's show. Thank you to Ted DiBiase for being with us, and thank you for listening. You mean a lot to me, and you mean a lot to this show. Remember, God is real. He loves you, and so do I. God bless. Thank you for listening to On Faith's Edge. You can subscribe to the show via iTunes, Stitcher Internet Radio, or your favorite podcast app on Android, Apple, or Windows devices. To reach out to Joe or leave comments about the show, visit onfaithsedge.com. You're important to us, and we would love to hear from you. In wrestling, who might we be surprised to find our believers in Jesus Christ? Sting. The Stinger uh, is a very strong Christian. Um, uh, a guy named Nikita Koloff, uh, who uh, was, you know, he never wrestled in the WWF or WWE, but, you know, he was a big name in, in the Carolinas and for a while. The Road Warriors, Hawk and Animal, are, are well, Hawk, Hawk passed away, but he, he gave his life to Christ just a couple of years before he died. And his brother, and his brother Animal, whose real name is Joe, Joe Laurinaitis, is also a very strong Christian. The heartbreak kid, Shawn Michaels. Oh. So that's.